0: And this book is so important. Hebrews 4.12 says that the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than a double-edged sword. And it's able to divide even our soul from our spirit, our bone from our marrow, and it can reveal the hearts of people. This is the only book that that is true of. It is alive because God has made it so. And what the catechism of the church teaches is that this book contains all things necessary for life and for salvation. But... We often struggle with a case of what I will call the, the Cleopasitis. Cleopas, the guy on the road, had a problem. Like Thomas before and like many of us, he was holding back from testimonies of the word until he could see Jesus himself. He wanted to see Jesus. I want to see Jesus, but I don't need to see Jesus to totally trust in him. Again, this, the word of God, is alive and it contains all things necessary for life and for salvation, all that we need to live this life and all that we need to be saved. I would love for Jesus to show up right now in our presence bodily. I say, come Lord Jesus. But even if he doesn't, I have what I need to live this life. And so do you. It's here in this, in this book. Now, Cleopas and his companion um, recount what their theology is. We can call it the gospel according to Cleopas if we want. There's kind of a play happening here where Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, comes alongside these two on the road and God keeps them from recognizing him. There's obviously some divine work here keeping their eyes from beholding him. And Jesus plays along with it. And so he says, hey, what are these things you guys are talking about? And they stop. They stand still and they look sad and they go, are you the only visitor in Jerusalem that doesn't know all that happened there? And he says, what things? He's telling, he's like, he's like baiting them in. What things? Well, about Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was attested with mighty acts and mighty words by God and people. And then our leaders put him up and he was crucified. And, and then, then he says, but we had hoped, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. What's more, it's the third day. Now, we know that Jesus told them many times, in many places in the Gospels, that the Son of Man, Jesus, would be crucified, and on the third day, he would rise. So here they are, not knowing it's Jesus, but they're saying, you know, and it's the third day. And then, what's more, some of the women from our group went to the tomb, and they found it empty, and there were some angels there telling them that he is alive. And then even some of our people, and we know, included Peter, ran to the tomb and verified that it was empty. But they came back and they didn't see him. You know, so here, here they are. They're, they're once again they're looking for uh, Jesus. They want to see him in verse 24, but they didn't see him. And the word of God is enough for us to know, but they don't. They don't get it. So I want to say, guys, if it looks like a duck and it quacks like a duck and it walks like a duck, it's a duck. He's risen. The tomb was empty. The women saw it. The angels testified to it. Jesus said on the third day, this is going to happen. What's going on? Well, they didn't believe. They didn't believe. And this passage here is really important for understanding the significance of the word of God. We can develop a theology of scripture in part from this passage. And what I want you to do is I want you to center your life on the Bible. I want you to be a biblical Christian. I want you to cherish it above all books. And let me give you just two quick illustrations of some people who've done that. One, uh, a speaker named Lori gave a talk at a youth convention in 2000. And she talked about her elderly grandfather who had this huge... Bible and it sat on a stand right next to his rocking chair. I mean, there's all the stereotypes of old people and rocking chair, old big Bible, and he has a magnifying glass like a Sherlock Holmes one, like this. And she would ask her grandfather stuff like, "Why do you read that book?" And one time, he had her as a child come sit in his lap, pulled out this big Bible, and then started reading it to her. And then he he put the magnifying glass over, and she went whoa because of course the words got really big, and it was. One, it was a symbol to her of the fact that her grandfather's life was centered on the word of God. And two, it literally, the words popped off the page because of that magnifier. But that is spiritually what often happens as we read the word of God, that the Holy Spirit will make the scripture come alive to us. What we need to hear from it will be spoken to us. Let me give you another illustration of someone who really cherishes the Bible. Um, In our church is a member who grew up in a country where the Bible was banned you would be persecuted or arrested if you were caught with the Bible. And he had heard the stories of Jesus, but he wanted so badly to read them for himself that he paid in the currency of that country, the equivalent of $250 to buy a Bible and he read it and then he buried it in a bag in his backyard. He had to dig a hole and bury it. Now I hear that and I think, man, do I take the word of God for granted? We're in a room with 300 Bibles or something. How many Bibles does the average American have in his house? It's like 6.8 or something. It's crazy. But we don't read it. We don't cherish it. And I want you to understand how important the scriptures are. And the reason that Cleopas and his companion get up and run seven miles back is because of the transformational power of the scripture. And I want to start also with the trustworthiness of it. And then I want to look at the telling of it. So let's, let's start with the trustworthiness of it. You notice something about this passage? Only one of the two people is named. Now, why is that? If you're going to name one, why not name both? Or why name either? Luke wrote his gospel after a very clear fact evaluation. He went and found all the testimonies, he did a careful examination of what happened, and then he wrote his gospel. And he wrote it probably only 30 years after the resurrection happened. And by naming Cleopas in here, he left a historical trail where anyone who doubted this could go and ask, Cleopas, did that really happen? Did Jesus come alongside? Did he, did he do all that it says in Luke's gospel? And you could get the, the testimony that way. Um, another place is Simon of Cyrene, the one that helped Jesus carry his cross, well, one of the gospel writers, when he describes that, says, this is Simon, whose sons are Alexander and Rufus. They actually name those two characters. Why? Because those guys were still alive when this was beginning to be circulated. And anyone who questioned this could go and say, hey, did your dad carry Jesus's cross for him? Yeah, he did. And here's, and they'll tell you about it. Same thing. Did Cleopas, did, did this really happen? Yes, it did. The scriptures are trustworthy. We can be sure this happened. And you know, the other thing that, that makes the scripture so trustworthy is they make the disciples look like fools. In, in the words of Jesus here, how slow of heart and foolish you are. And if you or I were making this up and it didn't really happen, there's no way that we would have made ourselves look like that. I would have written in there how confident I was that Jesus did what he said he did. And look, we believed and you didn't. And you know, I would have, I would have made us look good if I wrote this. But they don't look good. They look like they're full of doubt and fear and insecurity and they kind of, even after Jesus visits them, it says some of them doubted in another one of the gospels. I would have made us look so confident, so full of faith. But why is it the scriptures are full of these guys, you know, being slow of heart and foolish? Because they were slow of heart and foolish. It's because this is how it happened. It's trustworthy. The scriptures are trustworthy. But not only that, they're transformational. They change us. So these guys get changed as Jesus opens the Bible to them and to their understanding. Romans 10 tells us that faith comes from hearing the word. Faith is a gift of God. And the way that he has decreed that you get that gift is you hear the word of God and then faith comes alive in you. So the proclamation of God's word is so important. Do you know, um, the, the man, Joseph Smith, who started the Mormon religion, which is not, I won't call it a church because it's not Christian. It's, it's, a, it's, it's something else. He wrote the Book of Mormon. And in that religion, they have kind of a, a, a reverence for the Bible and use the Bible in a certain way, kind of so it looks like it's Christian. But then there's this Book of Mormon that totally distorts the teaching radically. And one of the places in there, Joseph Smith wrote, that a Mormon who starts to read only this book, but not the Book of Mormon over it, will fall away from that religion and will, in my words, become a Christian. Because of the transformational power of this book. The only way to keep that from happening is to keep deceiving yourself with falsehood. And since he was aware of what would happen, he just wrote that right into his book. Don't keep reading the Bible. You'll become a Christian. That's what happens. These guys are on this road and their hearts start to burn. If you're a Christian, you know kind of what that feels like, where truth, the truth of this, the truth of the cross, it starts to shape you. You start to feel like this really happened. He's alive. And there's a there's a warming of the truth in your own being. It's it's just, this has gone on for, for a long, long time. That's how God has, has grown his church. And so what happens here is Jesus comes along and he begins to open their minds and their hearts to understand that this isn't this part isn't the Jewish Bible and this part, the Christian Bible. This is the Christian Bible. The whole thing is about Christ. And what happens is Jesus opens their minds to understand beginning with Moses and the prophets, how all of it was pointing to Jesus. So it's here we start to shape our theology of the word. I don't know which passages he went to. Maybe he went to Deuteronomy 18 where Moses says, God will raise up for you a prophet like me pointing to Christ a better prophet was going to come come along one that was perfect or maybe he went to the story of David this king who had a heart like God's own but was a murderer and an adulterer and he wasn't perfect and how all the Israelites wanted to have a king like the people around them but God, God that hurt God's heart because he saw himself as their king well Jesus is that king the king of kings and so we maybe he went to the prophets and he went to Isaiah and went to the song the servant songs of Isaiah where it talks about this one who's willing to sacrifice, not just be a leader, but be a sacrificial leader, a kind of servant who would lay down his life out of love for the people. Or maybe he went to the minor prophets. Habakkuk is a favorite of mine. They're called minor, by the way, because they're shorter, not because they're less important. So Isaiah's big and major, and Habakkuk is shorter, but they're both important. In Habakkuk, it says, the righteous shall live by faith. And Paul picks that up later in the New Testament and explains it. Maybe Jesus went there and said, the reason he says this is because you can't make yourself righteous. It's by faith in Jesus that then you get God's righteousness. I don't know where he went, but beginning with Moses and the prophets, he explained to them how all of that pointed to Christ, how he's the fulfillment of scripture. And in so doing, it was transformational. It changed them. They, I I want you to know, they didn't, they didn't know that was Jesus talking to them. They couldn't see that. So here's what's important to understand is a a faithful testimony of this. You don't need the resurrected Jesus there with you to see transformation in a heart. If you share this truth with someone else, the Holy Spirit will come and bring transformation. That's what God does. So these guys, they got changed because of the content, not because of the particular messenger. They didn't realize it was Jesus. Only we, the readers, pick that up right here. But so not only is it trustworthy and not only is it transformational, we see the telling of the gospel here in the breaking of bread, the word and the sacrament. So Jesus is going to keep going down the road and they say, no, no, it's getting late. Come have dinner with us. So he agrees and he goes in there and at dinner, he takes bread and he lifts it up and gives thanks and blesses it. And then he breaks it and he gives it to them. And it says their eyes were opened in the breaking of bread. Why? Well, there's a couple of reasons, maybe. One is, maybe for the first time, they saw the marks in his hands where the nails were. He lifted up the loaf of bread and he broke it and they saw and they went, and then like that, he disappeared. He's gone. Now we know he went into Jerusalem and he just didn't want to run seven miles like they had to. So he got there earlier. Actually, I don't, I don't know. But but he, he, he did vanish from their sight. The scriptures are clear on that. So he was able to go there in his resurrected body in a different way that they couldn't go there. Um, they had to run there. But maybe it was just the very words. When they heard him... When they they heard him take that bread and then give thanks and then break it and give it to them Maybe they thought back to the feeding of the 5,000 where it's exactly what he did Or maybe they thought back to Maundy Thursday in the upper room Now they weren't there because it was just the 11 But they would have certainly been talking about this all weekend Maybe they they heard this is they, they just recognized his voice This is Jesus doing this and then he was known to them in the breaking of bread You know We Anglicans or people who are in a liturgical church like the Lutherans or the Catholics or the Greek church, we love this passage because every Sunday we break bread together. We have Holy Communion. And I will often, if I'm the celebrant, I will often just, as we're finishing the offertory, I'll just pray, God, would you open our eyes to behold you in the breaking of bread. Now, it's not magic, but it's not merely remembering something either. There's there's a mystery to this sacrament. There's a deeper thing going on where Christ is present. And many people have had their eyes opened as the story of the gospel isn't just told, it's experienced. People don't want you to just tell them about the faith. They want you to show them the faith. They don't want to just hear about Jesus. They want to meet Jesus. And one of the ways to do that is through the gift of the sacraments. And so we come forward and we kneel before the table and we take into our bodies the body and blood of Christ and our eyes are open. We experience the gospel in a way that mere words, just someone telling you, isn't, it's not the same. This is a different kind of telling of the good news in the sacrament, and it's so powerful for us. Liturgy is very powerful. There's a saying in Latin, lex orandi, lex credendi, the law of praying is the law of believing. What that means is how you pray will affect how you believe, not the other way around. You don't sort out your theology and then start praying accordingly. You pray and your prayers begin to shape you. Now, I don't know how he figured it out ahead of time, but in 1549, Archbishop Thomas Cranmer, who penned the first book of common prayer for the church in England after they left Rome, he figured that out. And so he thoroughly steeped the liturgy in scripture. I don't know if you realize that, but what we do every Sunday morning is really biblical. I mean, even the opening acclamation for Easter, Alleluia, Christ is risen. The Lord is risen indeed. It com- that comes right from this gospel passage. When they got back to Jerusalem, they said he's risen. And they all said, the Lord is risen indeed. They took that, the liturgy took that straight out of scripture. And that's just one of probably a hundred places where our Sunday morning um, church service is, is thoroughly scriptural. I don't know if you guys remember Jay Wright. He's, he was a staff member a number of years ago. He was our choir director, and then he got ordained as a priest, and he's gone to Texas to plant a church outside of Dallas. And Jay had come to us from a non-liturgical background. He was in a, a different kind of church that talked a lot about the Bible, but didn't actually have much Bible content in their worship. And he came in going, man, this liturgy is all Scripture, the Anglicans are praying the Bible way more, and as we pray it, we start to be shaped by it. We start to believe it. So there are probably, if you start reading your Bible and you've been a long-time liturgical person, you'll start recognizing bits and pieces of the liturgy in the scriptures because they took the scriptures and they made the Sunday morning church service in the Eucharist from the Bible. They did it intentionally so that people would be shaped as a biblical people. You know, last week I mentioned that um, John Wesley, in his testimony, he's the Anglican that that started the Methodist Church. Um, He he said as he read the scriptures, his heart was strangely warmed. So in his case, it it was from the word. His mom, it was through the sacrament that she had that experience. His mom's name is Susanna, and she said this speaking of the words of administration, meaning when you come up to a communion and we say, this is the body of Christ and we hand you the bread. That's called the words of, of administration when we're giving out the bread and wine. She said, the words struck through my heart and I knew God for Christ's sake had forgiven me all of my sins. It was in that moment that her eyes were open and she realized the cross did it. It paid for my sins. I am forgiven, all of them. It was participation in the story the telling of the gospel through the sacrament. So the scriptures are, they're trustworthy, they're transformational, and then the sacrament tells, it tells forth the good news. Now, here's what I want you to do. I, I want you to have a daily quiet time. I want you to get your Bible. If you don't have one, go to any of your neighbor's house, knock on the door, say, can I have one of your 6.4 Bibles, please? And, but, get, but seriously, get one in like, a modern translation, ESV, NIV. Don't get King James because we don't speak that way. It's, it just makes it harder. Don't make it harder on yourself. And then read it every day. Read it. Develop that habit so that you can become a person who's steeped in God's word because it's, it's trustworthy. It'll change you. And you need to be told the gospel over and over again. I never get bored of hearing the truth of the gospel. And it's been decades, over two decades now that I've heard it. It's always, it always resonates with my soul. I'm never like, oh, here we go again, the whole cross and forgiveness thing. I'm always like, yes, tell me more about this. So I want you to do that daily. I also want you to get into a small group with other people and discuss the word. Now, Dan and the team are doing a great job of, of relaunching the Alpha program in the church. And after that, there's a curriculum called Rooted. You're going to hear more about it. And that's going to lead us into life groups as a church. We're going to launch Alpha again in the fall. And I want you to go through Alpha and get plugged into one of these life groups so that you are doing this with other people. If you're a student, Chris, Chris has small groups that are part of the Wednesday night stuff. If you're, well, if you're a child, you're over in Sunday school right now. But the, the classrooms are functioning like small groups, and the teachers are really small group leaders, and we're being intentional about that as a team because we want everyone to have one of these groups where we're talking about the Word of God together because of the power of the Word of God. And I want you to keep coming on Sunday morning and rehearse the deeds of Christ through the liturgy. That we do that every week because we need to be reminded of it. And it's through those things that we then are prepared to go out as missionaries to the world. So if we've got the scriptures written onto ourselves deep in our hearts, then whenever what's, whatever the circumstance is that pops up, the Holy Spirit will bring to your mind those passages that are useful for that ministry situation. And then you can tell forth the gospel to people and help them come to faith. Now, let me give you one last image to take away um, that I just absolutely love of of a person whose life was centered on the word of God and who cherished the word of God. A man in our church who died about seven years ago named Tom Keating died alone. He was at his house alone. And when they found his body... He was, they, they speculate it was a very peaceful passing. He was simply sitting on his couch and he had his Bible open in his lap like this. He was in the word when he passed away. He was a man who knew scripture. He was a prayerful man. So his wife was very prayerful and scripture centered. And I just absolutely love that. I think that'd be a great way to go, to be in God's word and, and pass away in that moment. Now, I don't know how I'm going to die. I don't know how you're going to die. But I can tell you what, you can stack the odds in your favor that you will have the scriptures open when you die if you open them more often. (laughs) Let's be a people who read the word of God. Let's, Let's cherish it because it's amazing. And there is life in this word. Would you pray with me? Oh, Lord, I do thank you that this word will stand forever, that heaven and earth are going to pass away. But your word will never pass away. Lord, help us to cherish this book now, because we can find life here. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.